Today we invite you to come and to drink deeply at the well. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you on these Sunday mornings to meet in your presence, we come to worship and we come to listen to your word. And we understand what that sketch talks about, that all of us need to hear from you. We need to keep that connection with the life-giving water of Jesus Christ open and vital. And so, Lord, would you speak to us today through your word and through the things that you want to teach us this morning? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you challenge us, equip us, confront us with our sin? Whatever it is that we need, Lord, we want to hear from you. Amen. Today we're going to be continuing in our study of Matthew and chapter 11. And there are times when doing a study of a book of the Bible or different passages of Scripture can feel a little bit overwhelming. Uh, Some of you may be people who like to put together a puzzle, for example. And when you open that box and it's maybe a new puzzle of 500 or 1,000 pieces and you dump it out, you kind of wonder, whoa, this is a little overwhelming. How is all of this going to fit together? But as you put the pieces in place, you begin to see the picture more clearly. And sometimes when we do Bible study and you come to a passage of Scripture, you can think, like, how do all of these pieces fit together? Well, in Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12, there are a number of stories there, and you may have that question as you come to them and wonder, how do these stories fit together? How does this fit in with Matthew's theme in his gospel presenting who Jesus really is? And what we find in chapters 11 and 12 is that there are three cycles of unbelief and belief. And what we see are people struggling, wrestling with the question, who is Jesus Christ? Is he really the one that he claims to be? Can I believe that? And you see people in Jesus' time wrestling with that, just as we do or people do today. In uh, chapter 11, for example, in verses 2 to 24, you have the first cycle where there is this question that John asks about Jesus. You know, are you the one who was to come or should we look for another? And in the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see this pronouncement of judgment on the unrepentant cities that refuse to believe in Jesus. Yet it is followed by one of the most gracious invitations in Scripture to believe in Jesus to come to him and to, again, drink deeply at this well. In chapter 12 and verses 1 to 21, you'll have the Sabbath controversies where the Pharisees in particular were upset about Jesus and his actions on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And you'll have this invitation to come and place your hope in the one who is the hope of the Gentiles. And in the second half of the chapter, in verses 22 through 50, you'll find uh, statements about the unforgivable sin and how people were calling Jesus Beelzebub or saying that he did these things by the power of Satan. And you had a wicked generation that was calling for a sign, some kind of sign. Why don't you show us that you are the Messiah? And then it's followed by a statement of who really does belong to Jesus' family. It is those who have come to believe and place their faith in Him. And so we see these people wrestling with who is Jesus, looking at what He said and did. And what we see is there are people who came to believe in Him as the Messiah, the Savior, and there were those who rejected Him. 
Now, why didn't many of the people see who Jesus really is? Why didn't they believe? Well, that's one of the questions we're going to look at today. And I'd like you to listen to verses 20 to 24 as we hear, first of all, this warning against unbelief. Look at verses 20 to 24. It says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum form a triangle on the northern shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see that in this map. It's a little bit small, but maybe you can pick that out. And on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, you see those three cities that are mentioned there. Small villages, actually. But this is the area where Jesus performed most of his miracles and much of his teaching, including the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus moved from Nazareth, which is just in the lower left-hand corner, and he moved from there to the Sea of Galilee in that region, he settled in Capernaum. And that is where he would carry out his ministry for about the next 18 to 20 months. Peter and Andrew, James and John, were called to be disciples near Capernaum. Matthew was a tax collector on the main road that went through that area from the southern part of Israel and on up toward Damascus, and it would pass through that. It was a very lucrative post, if you will, to be a tax collector on that main road. And here Jesus had called him to give that all up and to come and to follow me. Jesus taught at Capernaum in the synagogue, and the people there in that town heard him on different occasions. When we uh, had the privilege of going to Israel on a trip, uh, we went to Capernaum, and we saw those that the ruins of the synagogue that's there. We saw the little streets that are still there and the houses where they would have been, the ruins of those, even what they believe is the ruin of Peter's house that was there as it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. Just a small little village, if you will, but enough to give you a sense of what it would have been like to live in that time, how near everything was, how people would have seen one another, and how they would have known Jesus and heard Him teach in that synagogue. But what struck me when I was there was I read the list of miracles that Jesus performed at Capernaum and I was stunned by how many there are in Scripture. Look at this list. At Capernaum, Jesus delivered a man from an unclean spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Jesus healed the Roman centurion's servant. Remember that Roman centurion who understood authority and asked Jesus to just simply say the word and his servant would be healed. Jesus healed a paralyzed man who had been let down through the roof by his friends. So persistent were they in wanting to come to Jesus. 
Jesus healed a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. And in Capernaum, he also raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus healed a nobleman's son. He healed two blind men and a mute man who had been possessed by a demon. And the scripture says, and there were many, many others who he healed in that place. You know, when you hear that list and you read through those and you think about it, I mean, it is stunning. In fact, Jesus did more miracles in Capernaum than any other city. Why didn't they see it then? Why didn't they believe in Him? They were blinded by their pride and unbelief. And what does Jesus say about these cities? He tells us that it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon are located on the Mediterranean coast in the area that would be Lebanon today and going north. And they were condemned by the prophets in the Old Testament because of their worship of Baal and their pride and their arrogance. They trusted in their wealth and their power and they did not feel that they needed God. And here Jesus is saying it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you. And he raises this question, In you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? It is a reference to Isaiah 14, to this passage where the king of Babylon exalts himself. And most believe that that passage there applies to Satan who, who exalted himself and who made these claims that I will be like the Most High, I will be like God. Will you be lifted up to the skies? The scripture says, No, Jesus says. You will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Can you imagine how those words must have stung? I mean, everyone knew these cities. Their sin was proverbial. They knew their wickedness, their immorality. And yet he is saying, because of your refusal to believe in me, to come to me and to accept me as the Messiah, it will be more bearable for these cities than for you. So what does this passage teach us about God's judgment? First of all, it tells us that there will be a judgment of people and of nations. We see that here. We'll see that again in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus talks about the judgment of nations and the separation of sheep from the goats. It also tells us that there are degrees of punishment just like there are degrees of reward. That it will go worse for some than for others on this day of judgment. That there are some sins that are indeed more serious All sin is an offense against the holy God. And all sin will result in our condemnation unless our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there are degrees of punishment just like there are degrees of reward. And how we live in this life really does matter. How we respond to the light that we have received, to the truth of God's Word, what we do with our time, what we do with our gifts and our talents is very important. And God sees all of that and knows all of that. The worst sin of all here is unbelief. 
pride of these individuals. Their, again, stubborn refusal to come to Christ would result in the most severe judgment. But what else is interesting about this passage is that God's judgment also takes into account His contingent knowledge. A few years ago, there was a lot of questions being raised about a new teaching called open theism. Greg Boyd was one who had spoke and taught on this and who claimed that God did not know the future. And others had uh, also taken up that particular view, but that had not been the view that the church had held as an orthodox teaching throughout its life. And this is a passage that speaks against that view. This passage tells us that not only does God know the future, He also knows all possibilities. He knows all contingencies, all of the what-ifs. What if you had responded to God here? What if we had done this? What if we had chosen to give our life fully to Him? He knows the outcomes. He knows the outcomes of decisions where we or others have said no to Christ. He knows the outcome of decisions where people have walked away from Him. When I was reading this passage, it brought to mind one of those conversations that I had had with an older man who once told me that he had heard God's call to ministry as a young man, but he had walked away. And in this particular man's case, alcohol had become an issue and it had really ruined his life. And I thought of how sad it was to hear this old man nearing death looking back on his life and wondering what if, what if he had answered God's call when he heard him speak. God knows all of that. He knows the what-ifs in our life. And that's why it is so important that when we come to Him, we are teachable and humble and we yield ourselves to Him and we choose to walk with Him in obedience. We are also grateful for God's grace that at any point we can come to Him and He is there to receive us and to forgive our sins. What strikes me in this passage is this contrast between this judgment on the unrepentant cities and a warning against unbelief, and then the very next passage, you have this most beautiful, gracious invitation of Jesus. You see, there were those who responded to the message, who heard Jesus' words and put their faith in Him. And so Jesus in verse 25 and following says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Who did see it? Who did believe in Jesus? Who came and who recognized who he was and heard his words gladly? It tells us here that it wasn't the wise and the learned. It wasn't the proud and the self-righteous. It wasn't people who thought that they had all the answers and didn't need Jesus. The problem here isn't a matter of education. It is a matter of ego. And those who were wise in their own eyes did not see it and did not come to Christ. God reveals Himself to little children 
Not in age, but in spirit. It is the meek and the lowly who enter the kingdom. It is those who humble themselves and come before God. It's those who see their sin and admit it. It is those who see their need for a Savior and who come to Jesus that find rest for their souls. And so Jesus invites us in this passage to come to Him. He tells us in verse 27 that all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us to come to Him just as we are. He doesn't tell us that we need to somehow clean ourselves up first. We couldn't. Sometimes I've talked to people who have felt like that. They've looked at their life and they've felt so unworthy to come to God or they've wondered if Jesus could receive them or could forgive their sin. And Jesus never asks us to clean ourselves up first or think that we have to do something to be worthy of His acceptance. He invites us to come just as we are to Him. And He is the one who will do the work in us. He uses two words to describe those whom He calls. The first word here is weary. And that word means those who are tired or worn out or faint. The same word was used to describe Jesus when he was weary from his journey in John chapter 4. When he came to that well where that Samaritan woman was, he was weary from his journey. And so in our life, there are times when we are just physically tired and worn out. It also was a word that described the disciples when they had fished all night and caught nothing in Luke chapter 5. They were weary from being all up all night with their work and their labor and had nothing to show for it. Here in this passage, the word weary also refers to those people who were tired of trying to live up to the expectations of the Pharisees and the legalistic demands that they had placed upon them tired of trying to measure up. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel weary? We all do. Weary because of our labor, weary because of our concerns, weary because of our sin. The other word that he used is the word burden. King James Version reads heavy laden. It describes the load that we carry on our shoulders we feel its weight even though it is unseen. But you can see it on people's faces. You can see when people feel the weight of what they are carrying. Maybe it is the weight of their sin and guilt. Maybe it's the weight that comes when you feel like the cares of the world are upon you. Maybe it's the weight when you are out of work or under financial pressures or more is being asked of you at your job than you feel you can give. Or maybe it's the weight of concerns over health, your health, or health of someone you love. Maybe it's the burden you feel in your marriage, or a burden for a child who's walked away from the Lord. We feel those things, 
And Jesus invites us to come to Him with our burdens and to lay them at His feet. He is gracious in His invitation. He says, come to Me and you will find rest. One of the ways that God meets and eases our burdens is really through the support that we receive from friends, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I think of a time when Gail and I were first married and we moved to New England to work in a campus ministry there and we did not have a place to live. We were going to have to look for an apartment. But we knew some friends there and our friends invited us to stay with them while we looked. And during those three weeks that we stayed there until we found an apartment and it opened up, it took all the pressure off. Because we had a place that we could go and we received help from our friends in our time of need. I've been reminded of those things again because our son Matt and his wife Deborah are kind of in a similar situation now. Finished with seminary, waiting on God's call. Where is he going to open a door for ministry and wondering what's going to come next? And the last time we talked to them, they said, well, Matt said, you know, Dad, we may be moving in with you for a time if this doesn't go quite as we planned. You know, you just, you just don't know what God's going to do in the future. And He always seems to bring us right to the end and then He provides just exactly what we need. But in the meantime, while we wait and carry those burdens, it is just so good to have friends or family or loved ones who help to shoulder that with us. And that is what God does. That's what Jesus does when He invites us to come to Him. Jesus invites us to find our rest in Him. And the rest that Jesus is talking about in this passage is a rest for our souls. It is salvation primarily that He is talking about. But there is also a daily rest that He gives us as we learn to walk with Him. I was reading how one other pastor had, you know, spoken on this text, and he said, you know, it can be quite tempting to come to a passage like this and to make it say something that it does not. It can be tempting to make this passage say that if you come to Jesus, all your burdens are going to be lifted. You're not going to have any trials or any problems, and life will be comfortable or easy. That's not what this passage says. Jesus is saying, though, if you come to Him with the weight of your sin and your burdens, you can be forgiven. And the weight of your sin will be lifted off and you will experience that glorious freedom of being a child of God. But when it comes to the burdens of this life, He does not say that He will remove all of those from us. But He will walk with us. And He will carry that load with us. Jesus is the well in that sketch that never runs dry. And just like in that sketch, we need to guard our relationship with Him, but we need to drink of that well daily and not let anything else become a cheap substitute for our relationship with God. This week I was meeting with a man in our church who's going through a difficult trial right now, a difficult set of circumstances. And I went to ask him how he was doing and to pray with him and to share from the Scripture. But you know, in my time together with him, I was so encouraged. Because he told me about his habit of reading the Scriptures. And he shared that there was a time in my life where I did not do that regularly. 
But the last seven years of his life, he has made it his practice to read through the Scriptures every year. And he said, that habit has changed my life. It has been a well of refreshment. It has been a source of strength. And so, even though the future may seem uncertain on the one hand, and we feel that in our human emotions, on the other side there is this strength that comes from the promises of God's Word and the source of life that He gives when we drink of that well deeply. Jesus is the only one who can do that. Jesus is the only one who can give us eternal life for what the writer of Hebrews calls that eternal rest that we are to enter into. In verse 27, Jesus makes this profound statement about His relationship with the Father that no one, no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. There's an exclusive relationship between the Father and Son that cannot be met by anyone else, that no one else can fully experience in that same way as the perfect Son of God. No one else can make that claim. And Jesus says the only ones who can come to know the Father are those who come to know the Son those to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can come to know the Father. There is no other way. And it is only Jesus that can satisfy our deepest thirst. We can't come to the Father on our own. We can't get there by any other religion or through any other spokesperson. It is through Christ alone. And this passage tells us that God is sovereign in our salvation. According to verses 25 and 26, He's the one who hides these things, and He is the one who reveals His truth. And it is only when He opens our eyes to see it that we can come to know Christ and understand and be saved. And so here is this powerful statement of God's sovereignty in our election and our salvation. And yet in the very next passage is this wonderful statement about our response and our responsibility to come to Him, to hear His invitation and to respond. God is sovereign, and yet there is something that we must do. Jesus invites us to become His disciples. He uses this word of a yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke was and it still is a symbol of discipleship. The rabbis used it as an illustration. Jesus wasn't the first to talk about a yoke. People were familiar with what a yoke was. I mean, they had seen oxen pulling in the fields. They understood what a yoke was like, and so it made sense to them. But it is less familiar to us. We have a picture there of what a yoke looked like, and in those days, one of the things that farmers would often do is if they had an older, mature ox, they would take and they would put a young ox, a young bullock, in the yoke, alongside that bigger, mature ox. And by working alongside the mature ox, the young ox would learn how to walk in submission. 
and how ultimately to serve and to be useful to the farmer, the master. There are a number of things that you can learn from the illustration of a yoke. Number one, the yoke reminds us that it is that yoke that keeps us on the same path and walking in the same direction. We can't stray from Jesus if we are yoked to Him. If we have tied ourselves to Him, if we have committed our life to Him and said, Jesus, we will follow You wherever You go, we don't stray when we're in the yoke together with Him. The yoke also allows Jesus to take the lead. He knows where we are headed and what we should do. A good yoke would be custom fit based on the size of the ox. It would be fit around the neck area that held that ox in place so that it would in a sense be tailor-made or appropriate for what he could handle. Jesus likewise knows our needs and what we can handle too. He knows the burden that we can carry. He knows what is needful for us to grow in our relationship with him. The yoke allows Jesus, though, to bear the weight of our burdens. When a young ox walks alongside a mature ox, that young ox might think he's pulling his share of the load, but it is really the older and stronger ox that carries the greater burden. And so it is with Christ. Jesus isn't saying, come to me and you will have no trials or burden. A yoke is made for carrying burdens. But he knows the ones that are appropriate for us. And he promises to walk with us and to carry that weight. He removes the weight of our sin. All of that can be lifted off of our shoulders if we will come to Christ and confess it to him. But he also invites us in our life to cast all of our cares upon him. Because He cares for us. To cast our burdens upon the Lord and He will always sustain us. And He will give us the strength that we need to carry those daily loads. Are you weary today? Is it from your sin? Then confess it to Him. Are you weary from the battle that you are facing? Have you felt the struggle with temptation or the attacks of the enemy trying to discourage you? Bring it to Him. Are you wounded and hurting today? Are you hurting because of things that have gone on in your life? Come to Christ. Are you in need of rest and refreshment? Then drink deeply at His well. Come to Christ and leave your burdens with Him and drink from a well that will never run dry. Let's pray. Father, this passage is so well known and so well loved. It is a word that we could use to hear every single day. For you know the weight that we carry in this world and you know the burdens that are on the people's hearts that are here this morning. And today we give those to you once again. Father, we ask you to forgive us our sins, cleanse our heart, help us to be vessels that are fit for your use. And Jesus, we come to you and we cast our burdens upon you and thank you that when we walk with you in submission 
that when we choose to take your yoke upon us, we find that it is very different from the yoke of this world or the yoke of religious Pharisees who would seek to burden us with things that you do not ask. Father, instead we come to you. And we would ask that we would learn more about you and walk in obedience and submission and fellowship and feel the joy that comes from a relationship with you. Father, would you do that? Would you lift us up? Would you encourage each one who's here today? And when we leave this place, may we go feeling that we had been in your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.